One January night in 1996, in the Atlantic Ocean, just off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, a US Navy ship narrowly escaped what could have been a catastrophic collision with a Canadian vessel. Years later, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, the ship's radio transcript was released, revealing just how close the ship came to a tragic end. Shortly after midnight, a dense fog rolled in, quickly blanketing the shoreline. A beam of light in the distance was barely visible to the captain. This is the captain. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. This is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. No, I, I say again, you divert your course. This is the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. This is a lighthouse. You call. This cautionary tale is actually an urban myth, and it's more than a century old. But its lessons remain true. In times of stress, it's especially crucial to be on the watch for hidden risks. Adaptability and responsiveness can often make up for bad judgment and cognitive error. But in the face of uncertainty, situational awareness is crucial. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. This is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that examines the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities across global capital markets. In this episode, we're looking for hidden risks in areas where investors might least expect them. Two experts guide our search. Rob Kaplan is co-chair of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, a global venture philanthropy firm, and former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. George Patterson is chief investment officer for PGM Quantitative Solutions. The US, like much of the global economy, is pivoting sharply away from a decade and a half of low interest rates and added liquidity from COVID stimulus packages. The challenge for investors will be to keep an eye out for all forms of risk as market conditions evolve. Treasuries, for example, can be a beacon of safety. Or, like the lighthouse in our story, their fixed rate status can obstruct other risks like duration and liquidity. As liquidity dries up, hidden risks become exposed and work their way through the financial system. Will the Federal Reserve stay on track to shrinking its balance sheet, even if market stress escalates? Rob Kaplan worries about the implications. I think it would be very important for the Fed to be able to reduce its balance sheet. We were at $800 billion around 2006, went to $4 trillion in response to the global financial crisis, whittled that down modestly in 17 and 18, 
and stopped at the end of 18. And then in the aftermath of COVID, went all the way from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. My concern is that is now in the neighborhood of, of in excess of 40% of GDP. My worry is there may be practical limits to how, how big you can grow that balance sheet in dealing with future crises. The challenge in reducing the balance sheet, $95 billion a month, as the Fed is now doing, is we have an enormous amount of leverage in the financial system. And by reducing the balance sheet, what you do is ultimately drain liquidity from the system. And we're seeing some evidence of that now. As you raise rates and drain liquidity, you start to cause bank deposits to leave the banking system. You cause losses on long-term bond portfolios and treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and you start to create stress in the financial system. So I don't know how far the Fed is going to be able to go ultimately in reducing the balance sheet. And we're seeing in response to the current banking situation, they're having to increase the balance sheet, at least in the near term, again, through the discount window and other programs. Of course, this has all happened in a dynamic system, with so many variables impacting each other. And as George Patterson explains, in an incredibly short period of time. COVID is not over. It's just in a different phase and one that will continue to impact us for probably several more years because parts of the economy move very quickly and parts of the economy move slowly. You can't change companies overnight and and supply lines, et cetera, all take time to adapt. So it was really an amazing social change in many ways that occurred. We've had an economic cycle in a record amount of time. You know, we've gone from crisis, interest rate cuts, monetary and fiscal stimulus, unemployment at levels that we'd, we'd not seen in ages, to then all of a sudden stoking inflation. And now we're, we're in the process of trying to, to get that under control. The risk-reward calculation has shifted rapidly. Markets appear confident about long-term outcomes. But as with any other downturn, there will be some financial damage along the way. Yields on so many things essentially went to zero. And there are many people that will then stretch for yield, right? They will take extra risk in order to pick up a small amount of, of additional performance by taking that risk. What they don't appreciate is that that is all conditional on liquidity. But then when sentiment changes, when liquidity dries up, oftentimes you find that those trades will blow up on you and just will be a really a source of hidden risk. And you see that with some of the, the challenges with banks that have had mismatched portfolios in terms of the duration. Isolated stress points have shown up in some regional banks in the US and, of course, Credit Suisse in Europe. Will the remedy be worse than the disease? So the problem in the United States, to some extent, has been we maybe are not as vigilant about financial issues in the system. So what's an example? We just started in 07, 08 to stress test the big banks. And that means we're in much better shape with the big banks on counterparty risk and degree of leverage 
and having enough capital in the downside. But we've had a tendency over a long period of time to wait for some type of dislocation or crisis before we take those actions. And when we face that crisis, we then tend to bring in the fire truck and use government funds. And yeah, there's the concern at the time of dealing with the crisis, we create moral hazard because we give people the impression that the government will come in and create some kind of safety net that might encourage over the longer run risk-taking. I think the answer is to be vigilant and you have to accept maybe we need more vigilance, more regulation, more oversight, broader stress testing among a broader swath of banks. And then you can avoid this situation where you have a issue come up where you have to act, where you're going to destabilize the entire financial system. It may mean slower growth, by the way, in the near term and a little bit less credit extension, but it might be worth it in terms of risk management. But that's a trade-off that we're going to have to weigh. One important distinction is between the regional banks and the big national banks, known as GSIBs, or Global Systematically Important Banks. If we're not careful, you'll have 10 banks, let's say, in the country, six GSIBs, and maybe three or four other big banks where a person would be willing or a company would be willing to keep deposits in excess of 250000 for their payroll account or some other purpose. And then you'll have literally 4,700 other banks where you're going to be very reticent to keep more than $250,000. And while individuals might be able to manage that, small, mid-sized companies keep much more than that in any individual bank in order just to manage their payroll. If you leave things as they are right now, most rational companies and CEOs I talk to, and certainly individuals, are going to be very reluctant to keep in excess of $250,000 unless it's sub-allocated out these, these insured cash sweep provisions where a bank says, I'll piece out your deposit to other banks. But otherwise, most people I've talked to are going to want to keep their money at either a GSIB bank, you know, one of the top six or at least one of the top 10. And the, the concern I have right now is it means you're going to have deposit outflows from literally thousands of regional banks that provide the bulk of the credit financing to small, mid-sized businesses in this country. There's three categories of people I'm talking to right now. They've either moved their deposits already. They're in the process of actively considering moving their deposits. Or they're saying, we're not doing anything right now, but we're watching it carefully. And if we see signs of more stress, we may act. And banks are doing a lot to sub-allocate, you know, this insured cash sweep and trying to do everything they can to manage this. The first order of business with a loss of confidence is to stabilize the banking system, to try to minimize harm and lower the risk of contagion while continuing to fight inflation. Then comes the question of how to shore up the system to avoid future crises. I think what comes with stabilizing it and insured deposits more broadly is tougher regulation on big and small banks. Probably a number of banks will need to go out and raise more capital, but this will give them time to do it. And you're going to see more mergers and consolidations, I would guess, in the banking system. But my concern is if you don't take this action, 
you're going to have continued instability here, particularly as the Fed is raising rates and trying to slow the economy. And I'd say the best of a bunch of bad options is doing something to ensure deposits across the system. Increase FDIC fees. Don't use taxpayer money if you can avoid it. Have the banks pay for it. But I think you need a stable banking system, particularly in light of the fact we're in the middle of an inflation fight and, and we've got to fight it by tightening financial conditions and slowing nominal GDP growth, which by definition is likely to create more stress, not less stress. You want to make sure that there's good confidence in the, in the banking system. Financial stress is not limited to the banking system. And we really don't know how this might be impacted by the financialization that took place across the US and global economy over the past several decades. The regulators have pretty good information on the banks. And so there really shouldn't be an excuse, in my opinion, for not seeing looming risks in the banking system. The part that I don't think we have a good grip on is the non-bank financial sector. And a lot of financial assets in the world over the last 15 or 20 years have flowed out of the banking sector into the non-bank financial sector, i.e. the unregulated sector. And my experience is I don't think there's good information or good transparency on the non-bank financial sector. And the regulators don't have great clarity on the risk being taken there. George Patterson agrees that time will tell. In particular, he's watching out for how commercial real estate will adapt to a new world. There's still several things that we haven't seen yet, but I think real estate is the one where there's probably the most uncertainty about how that's going to play out. Now, on the good side, the real estate industry in general moves very slowly because oftentimes buildings or offices are leased for years. You know, they're financed on a, on a longer term basis. And a lot of times the underlying client is really somebody that's fully cognizant of the risks and is well matched with the type of investment. So I, I don't think there's going to be a crisis as a result of that, but it is going to be painful. And I, and I think commercial real estate is one of the areas where we will see another shoe drop, but it's going to happen in slow motion over the next few years. Essentially, the way you figure out your hurdle rate is going to be very different when rates are zero versus rates at six or 7%. And unfortunately, some of the decisions that were made when rates are zero are, are no longer to be good decisions in today's environment. There are certainly looming macroeconomic risks that will influence investor decisions. But how much risk has already been priced into the markets? It seems to me what's already in the markets is that the Fed funds rate is going to get up to plus or minus 5%. What the Treasury curve, though, is also saying is they believe GDP growth is going to slow. And that's why the 10-year Treasury is in the mid-threes. And so they're assuming we're going to have to have elevated Fed funds rate at least for a couple of years, and then eventually it's going to start to drift down. And we really don't know by industry how much margins are going to erode. And then there's a whole range of businesses that are losing pricing power, but yet their costs continue to rise, particularly labor costs, and they're getting squeezed. I think there's an enormous amount of uncertainty what the margin erosion is going to be, what's the level of it, and by in what industries, 
And that's probably what's not priced in. Some sectors, like technology and travel, were clearly elevated by the macroeconomic impact of COVID. We saw some of the mega cap tech names pull, what what I like to say is they pulled their future earnings forward. So earnings that they might have gotten in 23 or 24 or 25 as companies were naturally moving towards kind of more digital presence were all of a sudden pulled forward. In 2019, no one on my department was using Microsoft Teams. In the middle of 2020, everyone was using Microsoft Teams. Everyone was using Zoom. A lot of the earnings that that were going to happen over the future were all of a sudden pulled forward. A number of companies hired in response to that. And of course, now you're seeing the unwinding of some of that because they mistakenly thought that that demand was a real permanent shift in demand. It was really, in my mind, just a rearranging of the deck chairs where earnings that they were going to get in the future were just pulled forward. Consequently, some companies, you know, travel, uh, leisure companies were basically shut down, went to zero, those earnings were really pushed into the future. But then you're seeing them come back now where, you know, restaurants, travel, extremely busy. You know, people are just desperate to get out there and, and return to that. The U.S. economy overall has been resilient. And so has the equity market, generally, despite a lot of volatility. Prices have remained on the high side compared with markets outside the U.S., the U.S. market has really held up. You know, earnings multiples have remained towards their high range. It's not to say that there aren't pockets of the market that are not weak, but it's really just been a very large disparity. So when we think about opportunities, particularly in equities, we tend to be much more focused on Europe or ex-UK emerging markets. The other thing that's very interesting in the U.S. particularly is that there's been a huge disparity between growth and value stocks. So during the pandemic, growth stocks really took off and they went to just extreme multiples and value stocks, which probably made sense, were were basically left for dead. This was anything that was, you know, asset intensive, you know, transportation, cruise ships, airlines went to kind of record low multiples. And we've seen that rebound, but it's really only come back part of the way when we look on a long term historical basis. People in the U.S. are still willing to pay a very high price for growth. It's still a very large spread between the valuation of growers and mega cap versus the valuation of kind of asset intensive traditional value companies. And that's something that we think just really is a long term opportunity that will have some bumps along the way. I mean, in the current environment we're in, I can understand if people are concerned about a slowdown value may take some lumps along the way, but there's really there's really just so much opportunity there that we think over the long term, having some exposure to that segment of the U.S. market makes a lot of sense. But like the lighthouse in our story, risk can come from unexpected sources. Situational awareness can help to identify hidden risks. Investors should be prepared to adapt as circumstances change. Join us for part two of this episode of The Outthinking Investor, when we continue the discussion on hidden risks with Robert Armstrong, U.S. financial commentator at the Financial Times, and John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thanks to our experts, Rob Kaplan and George Patterson, for their insights on hidden risks in part one of this episode. 
The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.